And it says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he look like, it looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray for God's blessing as Jip brings his word uh, to us. Lord God, please help us to be those who don't just listen to what the Bible says, but help us to be those who act upon what you have said. Help us to look intently into the perfect law. And Lord, would you bring us to freedom? Would you help us not forget what we've heard in the past, but put into practice what you've spoken to us? May we be a blessed people tonight as Jit teaches your word. Give him uh, your words to say to us and help us to be overwhelmed and blown away by how good you are through your law that brings freedom. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jit. Thanks for those words of introduction to this second session. Uh, a warm welcome if you've joined us. You've missed an excellent exposition of the book of Exodus. And so if you want to know about the book of Exodus, go and talk to Mike afterwards. Um, it will refresh in his mind. I'm carrying on our look at the Bible and travelling through the chronological order of it, for now at least. And we're in the books of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the last three books of the Pentateuch. And these are, of course, the most exciting. <laughs> Now, of course, many of you laughed at that because you know a lot of those books are just full of laws and rules and regulations and stipulations and commandments and many other long words describing long things you have to obey. Um, and we're going to start by looking at perhaps the pinnacle of the craziness that we can sometimes find ourselves in. Could I invite you to turn to Leviticus 19? Page 121. And I'm going to read this for us as an example of some of the laws that are in this particular section of the Bible. It says, it's entitled, Various Laws. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he has desecrated what is holy to the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. 
Do not defraud your neighbour or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great. But judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so that you may not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbours as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material. If a man sleeps with a woman who is a slave girl promised to another man, but her who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. Yet they are not to be put to death because she had not been freed. The man, however, must bring a ram to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a guilt offering to the Lord. With the ram of a guilt offering, the priest is to make atonement for him before the Lord for the sin he has committed, for his sin will be forgiven. I've got to stop there. <laughs> I can't keep going. At the end, at the end. So it carries on. And you, you can read the rest of that chapter in your own time, and you can meditate on it. But I just wanted to give it as an example of some of the things that we experience in these books. The vast majority of these last three books of the, what might refer to as the Pentateuch are these laws. There is narrative, though, in the midst of the book of Numbers, there is an explanation of Israel's wilderness wanderings. What happened? and how they eventually got to the promised land. I'm not going to spend much time on that because I think this is perhaps the key issue that people find tricky, how to relate to the laws themselves. We've done a lot about story and narrative and how to handle that, but we haven't done anything on what happens when we come to these laws. And so I'm going to pray as we dig in. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, correcting, rebuking righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, might be fully equipped for every good work. And we pray and ask that you do that in our midst today. Help us to understand it, to rightly apply it, and to walk in its ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the law itself was first given to Moses on Mount Sinai over a period of 40 days. And then it was given again in the book of Deuteronomy by Moses himself on the edge of the promised land, a reminder of the law. So part of the reason we've got so much law is that it's doubled. It's said twice, and you'll find, for example, there are two copies of the Ten Commandments. There's one in Exodus that Mike just looked at. There's also a shadow copy, a, sorry, an exact copy actually, slight variation in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And you'll find a lot of these laws are duplicated. And it's very interesting to see that within these books. So let's just set a bit of context of this. But I want to start by saying and addressing the elephant in the room, and that is that most of you will have been reading the Bible through, perhaps on a reading plan, and got to these books and thought, oh my word. Literally, how am I going to understand this? How does it apply? I used to be on a chronological reading plan, so I would find myself 
in certain books of the Bible for weeks on end. And so you'd find yourself two weeks in Leviticus. Well, those are bad weeks if you don't know how to understand Leviticus, trying to walk according to the book of Leviticus for a couple of weeks. But actually, my experience, and many people here, will, will be that actually there's riches and treasure here. If we understand the bigger story and how it fits into that story. Interestingly, uh, the world around us views these laws with great suspicion and often calls Christians hypocrites for not fully obeying them or picking and choosing at them. Sorry, I'm going to keep carrying on. Can you leave questions to the end? Is that okay? Thank you. And so, for example, some of you will have watched the uh, TV series The West Wing. Have you seen that? Yes? Great. Okay, so in one episode of the TV series, President Bartlett is uh, told off by a TV talk show host who quotes Leviticus 18.22 at him, which uh, goes against homosexual activity. And President Bartlett, who's a brilliant man with a brilliant mind on this uh, TV programme series, comes back with this. I want to ask you a couple of questions while I have you here. I'm interested in sending my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table before it was her turn. What would be a good price for her? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? comes back at this person with the whole list of laws that Christians don't observe and asks, aren't you just being hypocritical, picking and choosing as to what you can and can't observe? The Old Testament law is very controversial sometimes. But also, we know through church history and the history of culture, it's been very powerful. It's been recognised that most of English common law has found its basis in this Old Testament law. It's recorded that King Alfred, who wrote down some of the foundational laws of the land that apply today, actually did so with the Bible open in front of him, and especially the Old Testament laws. And so he had his version of common law for the land, and he had the Bible open in the other hand. And he held them together, asking God, what should be the foundational rules of this land? And more than that, Jesus held the Old Testament laws in these books of very high regard. So in Matthew chapter 5, 18, he says, Until earth and heaven passed away, not an iota, not a dot, or not a jot or tittle, in some of the older translations, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He holds it in very high regard, actually. There's a timeless, eternal quality to it. So the key question for us is, if we want to honour all of God's word, how do we read and rightly apply it in its context and understand it as part of God's bigger picture of what he's doing as he works out his salvation plan? I've entitled this introduction on it in your booklet with the words, whose law? Because it's God's law given to Israel to be their law, 
But is it our law? How can it be our law? How can it be? It's in our Bibles. It's part of what we've received as a heritage. How does it apply to us? Well, I want to step back from that preliminary question and ask um, from that question and ask two preliminary questions first to help us to understand these things. Firstly, what were the laws given for? And that's the second question, actually, in your handouts. As with any type of writing, Mike mentioned this early, context determines interpretation. So you wouldn't read Shakespeare as a commentary on postmodern Britain. It's the wrong context. And so you need to understand the context. And of course, the context, as Mike wonderfully brought out, is of a two-sided covenant between God and the people of Israel. God had rescued them out of Egypt, promised to be their God, to bless them with the promised land he was going to give to them in the future. But on their side, they were to maintain this promise by obeying the law that showed them how God wanted them to live in the promised land. And they were to enact it in their midst even before they reached the promised land. You see, Israel were a really young and inexperienced people. They'd never been a nation of themselves. They'd just been a people under slavery for generations. They had no constitution, no legal framework. The only thing they'd seen was the idolatrous and very dangerous Egyptian system. And preparing to enter the promised land, they had nothing that would keep them safe from slipping into the ways of the nations that surrounded them and away from God. So God gives these laws in love to keep them close to him. The helpful image that comes time and time again as we're looking through the Bible, we've used it already, is of a wedding ceremony, actually, of the exchanging of vows. God has made his vows to Israel, binding himself to them, promising to keep them, to hold them forever, for better or worse. And these are Israel's vows in return, where they bind themselves to God, promising to keep them forever and be his people, and he would be their God. It's important to understand this context of covenant, because it highlights a major point for us, that we're not under the same set of vows in old covenant. But as followers of Christ, actually, we're under the new covenant, that's been made not at Mount Sinai but at the cross a new place for a new promise and a new double-sided covenant actually and you will be looking at that in the time to come the Bible of course is split into the Old and New Testament and you'll know that the word testament is an old word simply for promise or covenant actually And in the new covenant, our vows look different. It's more to do with faith in Christ and faithfulness to him. And God's vows are different as well. Rather than the temporal blessing in the land, he promises eternal blessing, eternal life, forever. Which means as a baseline, these laws aren't commands for us to keep, to be in covenant with God. This is the old covenant, not the new covenant. But even though they are not God's commands to us specifically, they are still God's word to us, meaning that he still speaks through them. So the question is, how? How? 
Well, I want to answer that question by looking at this next question that's on your handouts. What do the laws reveal about God? Because understanding this helps you understand how they apply today. They reveal two things about the God that's speaking them, that's making these commands obligatory for Israel. Okay, I'm not going to carry on until... No, I'm unwilling. I'm sorry. I'm unwilling to bring you to everyone else. I'm unwilling, sorry. No. We're not carrying on until. Sorry, we're waiting for you now. We're waiting for you. We're waiting. Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your kindness to us. Pray for your blessing upon, I don't know his name, but I pray that you'd bless him. I pray for his soberness, that he'd sober up soon. Pray, Lord, that any of the words that would have been helpful to him in what I said and what Mike said would ring in his ears, that somehow, even in the midst of that, Christ would be witness to. And for your blessing as we carry on looking at these books of law, that you'd help us to understand them rightly. Amen. Amen. Thanks for bearing with that, and uh, thank you for your patience. Well, I was just saying that uh, there are two things that these books of the law uh, reveal about God. They reveal his holiness, and they reveal his love. And Israel needed to know both fully. So they reveal his holiness. Look back at the passage I've just read out and the first two verses. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Lord's God gave to Israel were meant to cause them to imitate and reflect his holiness, that they might show in his holiness to be one in it, wed with it. Interestingly, in the Bible, the most common attribute given to God is not that God is love. Guess what it is? It's God is holy. Far outweighs the descriptions that God is love. People often get this the wrong way around. His holiness is spoken about much more than his love. God is holy. And that means he can have nothing to do with sin. In fact, he breaks out against it in its expression by his holiness. And Israel weren't to learn to be like the nation they'd been rescued from, is Egypt, nor the nations that they were going to be living amongst in the future. Their code of conduct wasn't based on 
holiness at all, but pragmatism and the pleasures of the desires of their heart. And Israel had that in them as well, and they needed to learn about God's holiness. And if anything, all these laws point to that, God's holiness. Israel was to be holy, as their God is holy, distinctively different. And that's why a lot of the sacrificial system is talked about in these laws, because that was their means of a reset button. They were going to sin. They were going to stray out of holiness. But the sacrificial system, on a daily basis, was a way of pressing the reset button in their relationship with God and coming back into his holy presence day after day. For the worshiper that has guilt in their mind, they can go and offer a sacrifice and say sorry. For the whole nation, the sacrifice was made every single morning and every single evening. And we know, of course, and we'll talk about later, that that was just for foreshadowing and making available in advance what Christ would do at the cross. They didn't know that yet. They didn't know that was the power behind those sacrifices. But they knew that they needed to, to stay in God's holiness and to share in it. And that makes sense of some of the very strange laws that you find in these books. Because they're to do with being holy and distinct. So in our passage, there's a reason I chose our passage, because there's some very strange ones in it. In verses 19, there's all kinds of rules about mixing things together. You're not allowed to mix animals, you're not allowed to mix seeds, and you're not allowed to mix clothing types. How interesting. Doesn't make sense until you understand the unholy practices of the nations around Israel who sought to actually incite the fertility gods to copulate and create greater fertility by deliberately mixing things together. So they would deliberately make animals of different species try to mate together. They would deliberately interweave their crop plantations. They would deliberately weave materials together differently, mixing them together, or as a kind of religious act to try and get these fertility gods to procreate and create greater fertility. And so when these rules are given not to mix these things together, it's not because they're bad in themselves, it's because what that would tempt them to do, to step into that religious practice that the nations around them were doing. And understanding that a lot of the laws have that contextual meaning helps us a lot. It's just about the holiness of Israel reflecting the holiness of God. And applying this to us, of course, God hasn't changed. He's still holy. It requires holiness of his followers. So the Apostle Peter repeats uh, Leviticus 19, verse 1, that we've just read in 1 Peter 1, where he says this, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Call to holiness still remains. We were to read these laws and think about the holiness of God. But the second thing they reveal is the, the love of God. In these laws, God's heart of love is reflected in his desire to see his people treat each other with love. For those of you that are parents, and all of us have been children at some point of parents, 
You will know that you love each one of your children, if you've got more than one children, equally and abundantly. And your love for each one of those individually means that you hate seeing when they start fighting and not showing love to each other, actually, and not treating each other right. Your love for them individually means that you want them to treat each other in a loving way. And the same applies here, actually. God, the father of this nation, looks down on the nation and wants his people to love each other and treat each other in a loving way. And that's why in this passage there are laws about the well-treatment of foreigners, provision for the poor, justice for the oppressed. And it's all summed up in verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, applying this to us, nothing changes. Nothing changes. God is still love, still seeks to see his people act in a loving way to each other. You'll know that in the Gospels, Jesus said that the entire law could be summed up by the idea Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. He re-quotes this particular law as a summation of a lot of the other laws. The Apostle John says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So when we read these laws, you need to be challenged about the content of your love for others. See, the God of love, he loves his people, who rescued them out of slavery, and our God of love, who's rescued us, and wants us, therefore, to imitate that love and to love one another. And that needs to find, as was being brought out earlier, a practical expression, not just hearers of a word, but doers of it also. Okay, so that was three questions so far. We're finally getting to the main question. How do the laws apply to us today as we go through them? Well, having understood the context, this is old covenant, not new, and what these laws reveal, holiness and love of God, and therefore what's required of his people in terms of their holiness and love, we're finally in a place to answer the practical question, how does it apply today? Lots of possible models of working out if any of the Old Testament laws still apply to us today, who are part of the New Covenant. Many have suggested trying to split the 616 or so laws of the Old Testament into categories. The moral laws, to do with your treatment of others particularly. The civil laws, to do with government infrastructure and administration and ordering right community living. And the ceremonial laws to do with the sacrificial system, especially. And that actually we can reject the ceremonial and the civil and just keep them all. Sounds nice. Problem is, it's not that easy. Not that easy because, firstly, some of the laws fit in all three categories. <laughs> and secondly, to the Jew of the time, they would never have delineated the laws like that. This was all God's law, not to be held in different categories, but all part of the same act of worship, of response to God as to what he'd done in rescuing them from slavery. You just couldn't do it. And they would have hated you for doing it, actually. We're not to project onto these laws our own Western, nice, simple systems, I want to suggest. Dangerous, dangerous. I want to suggest a very simple model that should work in most circumstances. The, the law, in the end, is of two different types. 
either these laws are mentioned again in the New Testament and therefore still apply, or they're not mentioned again in the New Testament and they don't apply, but may still have great meaning and value to us. I think it is that simple. Does that make sense? Either they are repeated or they're not. And if they are repeated, we keep them. If they're not, well, they still have value, and we need to think out what that value is. So let me kind of tap and unwrap that. So for those that aren't repeated again in the New Testament, the vast majority of these laws are not repeated again in the New Covenant perspective. Vast majority of them. But that doesn't mean that they do not have value. And let me suggest two values to the ones that aren't repeated that we can still hear God's voice speaking through them. Firstly, they should stir within us a desire to fulfill the spirit of the law, even if we're not desiring to fulfill the letter of it. So we still have got the remit of being under God's holiness and love. And so that should translate certain laws of these into the modern context. So, for example, we'd still want to probably, verse 29, not sell our daughters into prostitution. Not repeated in the New Testament, but we know under that remit of God's holiness and love. And what Jesus said, yes, actually, that's a good one. That's a good one. Some of the more unusual ones, you have to do a bit of translation work. So, for example, in verse 9 of our reading, it says, do not reap the edge of your fields, but leave some of it for the poor. Well, hands up if you're a farmer here. No one. But what's the modern equivalent? Well, perhaps it would be looking at your bank account and saying, well, I'm not going to use all of it for myself. 5% of it or more, like the edge of a field, is going to be for the poor. It comes out at the end of the month or at the beginning of the month. It's going to keep that for the poor. That might be a way of applying that to just think about loving others as God has loved us. And another value for these laws that aren't repeated is I want to say sometimes you just, just have to give thanks that you don't have to do them because Jesus has done them for you. So all the sacrificial system, all the laws, especially in Leviticus, is full of them, you don't have to do. And the reason... Because Jesus has fulfilled them, the greater sacrifice. He's the greater guilt offering. He's the greater sin offering. He's the one who's consumed as the burnt offering upon the cross. He's the one who took our sin and shame upon his shoulders. He's the one that actually gives power behind the sacrificial system. They didn't know it at the time. But the writer of the letter of the Hebrews says, actually, the two are connected. They didn't know it, but we know it now that they are availing themselves in advance of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. And so when you read these laws, just give thanks. So when you read about this crazy system of five rams every single morning and two lambs and a, a dove, of, of all things, of course, well, I don't have to do that. Jesus has died on the cross for me 2,000 years ago. I don't have to do that. I don't have to get my hands bloody. I don't have to go to Jerusalem and present this as an offering. Jesus has done it at, in Jerusalem all those years ago. Let's give thanks for a lot of these things. Okay, so that's the ones that aren't repeated. What about those that are repeated? They're re-mentioned in the New Testament. 
Well, there are some that are nearly exactly repeated and some that are repeated with a variation, a slightly different wording. So, for example, verse 11 in our passage is uh, prohibitions on stealing, lying and deceiving almost exactly are recited by Paul at the end of Ephesians 4. In fact, scholars think he had that passage in mind as he was writing that bit of Ephesians. Importantly, what some of us will have to wrestle with is uh, Leviticus's 20 prohibition on homosexual activity. Actually, it's repeated in the New Testament twice. Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. Not exactly, but a variation on the idea. Again, something that some of us will be wrestling with. However, there are some Old Testament laws that aren't just repeated, but they're intensified and made harder in the New Testament. And you'll know some of them. So, for example, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 quotes from the Old Testament law six times, and guess what? Every single one of them he makes harder. He makes harder. So, for example, he says that... um, Verse 19 of our passage, love your neighbour as yourself, but I say to you, not just love your neighbour, but who else? Your enemy. He makes it harder. Or about adultery. What does that become a harder thing to do? What aren't you allowed to do? You're not allowed to look lustfully. Every single one he makes harder, he mentions And there's a reason for that, because we're held to a higher bar. Sounds crazy, because we don't have to obey 616 laws, but actually we are held to a higher bar. We've seen a greater revelation of God's holiness. We've seen a greater revelation of God's love, preeminently at the cross. His holiness meant Jesus had to die for our sins. His love meant Jesus had to die for our sins. We've seen a greater extent of both of them. And that means what we should practice in terms of holiness and love should be greater as well. There's a greater remit on us. So when you look at some of the Old Testament laws and say, that was really tough, I understand why that was really tough. I hate to say to you, but sometimes what you need to live by is even tougher. It's even tougher. And that's that's a conversation between you and God. The call to holiness in these books, well, we're called to an even greater level of holiness. The call to love our neighbours and, and foreigners and widows and orphans in these books, we're called to do it even more, to a greater and deeper and fuller level. Okay, well, one last question. But before that, I want to share a story of... Yes, I've got time, haven't I? Wonderful. Of what a profound effect these laws can have. So many of you will have heard of William Wilberforce, who was instrumental in the dis- dismantling of the slave trade in this country. Not single handedly, but actually, he played a large part in it over a whole lifetime. What many of you might not know, unless you've read his biography, is that he was a very, very wealthy man. <laughs> through things that he'd inherited as part of his fortune, as many an MP in those days were. And he could have used that wealth to actually live a life of luxury. Many of the MPs in those days used to take a carriage 
from their house, very close by, to Parliament every single day, even though it was only a few hundred metres away. They were that rich that they couldn't be bothered to walk. But William Wilberforce decided to do something completely different. You might have heard the story already. He decided on purpose to live about 20 minutes away from Parliament. And rather than take a carriage to Parliament every single day, he decided to walk every single day. And the reason was he had memorized Psalm 119, which is 176 verses all about God's law. And every single day on his way to Parliament, he'd recite it. And every single day on the way back from Parliament, walking, he'd recite it. All about the power of God's law that undergirded what he was fighting for in Parliament to see slaves released from slavery and the slave trade. The power of God's law as he just spent every single day backwards and forwards meditating on it. It's amazing, really. Little known story, but that was part of his passion, part of what undergirded him for the long haul. He had to do it for many decades until finally it came about. Well, I'm going to end, and the last uh, subtitle in your booklets, I think I've entitled, I am the law. Um, that isn't me saying that I am the law. You might be able to guess what I'm about to talk about now. Uh, I want to jump a thousand years later, um, even further, sorry, more like 2,000 years later, to Christ, uh, Sermon on the Mount. I've already mentioned some of it from Matthew chapter 5, where he says to his disciples and the crowds, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In my first session, that if you were here yesterday, I said that a couple of parts of the Bible say very clearly that Jesus said, the Bible was all about him. All points to me. Huge claim. One of the biggest he made. And the question is, how do these laws point to him? We've already seen that in part, talking about the sacrificial system. But I want to say that actually every single one of those laws points towards him. And this is how. He says that he has come in that passage to fulfill the law and that it stands until he does so. And so when did he do that? Well, as Christians, we believe that he did that ultimately at the cross. He led the perfect life, fulfilling God's law on Israel's behalf, fulfilling the old covenant, to usher in the new covenant. The new covenant made in his blood at the cross, and the two meet each other actually at the cross together. One thing I haven't mentioned about these laws is that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, just on the edge of the promised land, Israel were told about the blessings and curses that come with the law, that you will be blessed if you keep them in the land, some amazing blessings that are mentioned, but you will be cursed if you do not keep them and some awful curses that are mentioned as well. But we believe as Christians that those laws all speak to 
Jesus is coming, and all point to him because he perfectly fulfilled it ultimately at the cross and should have been given the fullest, most extravagant reward of the blessings of life in the land. And yet that's not what he was given. He instead was cursed with the curses of the law, being cut off from God, being cut off from his people, dying under the weight of sin. And so when we read this law, we just see that every single time, I want to say. You'd see Jesus, he completely obeyed it. He was perfect in righteousness in God's sight. He was the perfect Israelite, the perfect Jew. He completely obeyed it. And yet he didn't get the reward. And in fact, that was because in the new covenant, we get it instead. We got the reward. Translated slightly differently, like I said, but we get his reward of perfect obedience. I'm going to end with a story. Um, some of you probably will have seen the um, awful, awful 1995 film Judge Dredd. Anyone seen it? It's got Sylvester Stallone in it as Judge Dredd. And he plays a cop in a post-dystopian future where there are a number of megacities that have grown and they need these super cops to patrol them and to enforce justice. And his repeated refrain throughout the film when he meets criminals is, I am the law. He is what the law says. He rightly interprets it. He judges criminals according to it. And then he executes the judgment there and then. He is the law. And you don't mess with him at all. He's judge, jury, and executioner. But then later in the film, he's framed for murder and convicted of breaking the law. And guess what he says? I never broke the law. I am the law. And yet he's convicted by the same law that he had kept his whole life. He's sent in judgment into exile to the savage wastelands of the future earth. But if you've watched the film, of course, that's not where the story ends. And it all turns out okay. It is a terrible film. <laughs> Words can't describe how bad some of it is. But the reason I wanted to highlight that, it came to mind as I was preparing this, is that Jesus is the, actually the only one that can say what he says in that film, I am the law. Actually, he's the one that can actually say, yes, I'm the right interpreter of the law. I say what it says. I'm the right judge. And actually, I'm your judgment in the end. How did you respond to me? He is the truest expression of this law. That's how this law points towards him. And of course, just as in that film, he was framed and convicted as a lawbreaker, a blasphemer of God, and yet he never was. He never was. He fulfilled it perfectly. Paul says in Galatians that this law was given as a temporary guardian until we came to mature adulthood. Until Christ came and we reached mature adulthood. And we'd see its fullest expression 
and we'd meet the one who'd write the law on our hearts, as was promised, so that we can fulfill it to an even greater level, the greater level of holiness that we're required to live by, the greater level of love that we have seen at the cross that we need to live by, that he fulfills within us by his spirit. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of the law, these books of the law given to Israel in their wilderness wanderings. We thank you preeminently, Lord Jesus, that you are the full fulfillment of them. Thank you, as one of the law says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree, that you became the curse so that we would never have to receive it. Thank you that you took the curse of our sin and shame. And thank you for that divine exchange that we receive the merits of your righteousness to live a life deeply walking in your ways, reflecting your holiness and love. Help us to do so, we pray. Amen.